Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Hello. I think I've got to ask the speakers to go and sit in their proper places, please, because otherwise they're, like, near me, which I don't like. Right. I did forget to say that, actually, that they've all got a a place somewhere, I think, on the end of every table. But um, they do. They can move around as if it... Thank you. So, I'm Claire Benny. Um, I've... Hello. Woo! Hello. Okay, everybody, here we go. So, (laughs) my name's Claire. Um, I've designed housing, I've commissioned it, and I now advise on it. I'm a really boring, nerdy stato when it comes to housing, and uh, my whole purpose in life now is to make sure that new housing done by local authorities is nice and not terrible. Um, So that is what I spend my time doing. And I'm going to start with some stats for you whilst I introduce the speakers. So who knows how many homes are built in England and Wales in one year? Shout it out, please. Uh, 200,000 is not bad. It's around the 180 mark, and it depends how you count it, but that's not a bad estimate. So how many of those, what percentage are built by house builder PLCs? Anybody? 70% is correct. Oh, this man's been reading my... You're not allowed to talk anymore. Fantastic. And the top three of those PLCs deliver what percent? It's around the 30% mark. So just, just, I'm just doing the landscape of who designs and builds housing for you before we kick off, because it's really important, actually. So that leaves 30% by housing associations, local authorities, niche developers, PRS developers, etc. But it's only 30%. Final stat, um, what percentage of the homes that get delivered are houses, not flats? Ooh. It's 70%, I heard somebody say it. Um, And 64% of those homes are not in cities. So let's just open our London minds a little bit and remember that all those big brick warehouses are not what mostly gets delivered in the UK. Okay, and of course the 30%, the ones we like, the clients who design the uh, get the funky buildings, um, they've got a longer-term interest in their buildings. The PLCs build them and go away. All of that housing is valid housing, uh, but we just have to remember that a lot of it is that uh, short-term vibe. Right, four really high-quality speakers tonight. Um, We've got Annalie Riches, who won the Sterling Prize. (laughs) 
which is, of course, an amazing event in the world of housing. Um, she works with a lot of local authorities, and if I think about what Annalee and David do, they, all, they create something from nothing, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they've just sold a fantastic house they did, uh, a flat, rather, maisonette, whatever you want to call it, in London, uh, on a tiny site, and they know what to do with a tiny budget, um, and they indeed lived in one of their own properties, and I think that's a really fantastic thing to do as well. So Annalee's clients do tend to be the 30% and not the 70. Paul Karakusevich, where's Paul? Somewhere over there, fantastic. Um, if there's an estate that needs to be rethought in London, uh, you'll probably see Paul somewhere uh, around there. He's hugely trusted by local authorities, including Enfield and Hackney, amongst many others. And he, his firm was involved in King's Crescent uh, in Hackney, which has won numerous awards. So everybody knows Paul in the uh, local authority housing world. So he's doing stuff for the 30% as well. Then we've got Canny Ash. Where's Canny? Somewhere over there, fantastic. And indeed, she's designing for the 30%, but actually she's been doing a bit of uh, house builder stuff as well, which is interesting, uh, in Southwold for a small uh, developer there, which I think is really interesting. Um, and if I think of what Ash Sackler do, she's one half of Ash Sackler, um, they think incredibly carefully about context, physical, historical, social, everything. So um, that's probably Canny's and Robert's calling card. And finally, we've got Johnny Anstead. Where is Johnny? He's right next to me. Fantastic. Uh, too close, exactly. And Johnny's what I call the 2%. Uh, he might even be the 1%, actually. Um, <laughs> Johnny uh, set up Town, which is a niche developer. It's the kind of developer that every single architect in this room wants to work for, so I'm going to protect him later. Um, you know, I think of people like Igloo, Pocket, Anthology, and they've all got funky names, and that is, there's a good reason for that. They're not called sort of St. George or Barclay or whatever. Um, and Johnny's got a really interesting background and CLTs and Princess Foundation and all kinds of things. So he's um, uh, here as the uh, developer in the room. And he recently did Marmalade Lane. Yay! Fantastic, which if you don't know it, is um, cooperative housing. Uh, in uh, Cambridge, is that right? Fantastic. Right, so who designs for the 70%? Uh, the rumour is nobody does, but actually, uh, Barrett has six in-house architects, everybody. Bovis has four, and Countryside has two. Where are they? They're not here tonight. I think that's a shame, actually. I think we could have done with some of those uh, people in the room. So I'm now going to hand over to the first speaker, who's Annalie, who's going to say anything she likes about uh, the crude, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you might even contest uh, that British housing is ugly and horrible. Uh, you might say it isn't, but uh, somebody who set up this talk uh, thinks it all is. Um, all these four speakers have delivered from some fantastic housing. Uh, and I suppose the question is, how did they do it? And why isn't anyone else doing it? So I'm going to hand over now to Annalie, I hope. Hello. Um, <laughs> that's really loud. On the question now. Um, okay, so I wonder if the houses themselves are really that ugly or if it's actually the way that they're plastered around along roads which are designed by highways engineers. Because actually, I think if you look at what volume house builders are doing, it's kind of all right. I mean, it's not... I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not really, really ugly. And what really bugs me is the fact that the person with the most power 
in any, any council department is the highways engineer who literally dictates how the roads are designed. And I think if you look at the new national um, design guide that's been... I mean, whatever you think about it, all the photos in that design guide are of pedestrianised public space and no one shows how you deal with the requirements that are placed for bin lorries, parking, and I just think if one thing could be changed to improve housing, it would be to enlighten all the highways engineers across the country and to design the roads differently, actually. Thank you very much. Controversially short. Oh, sorry, it must just be longer. I could go on for hours. That's great. Um, I will therefore hand over to Paul Karakusevich to say a few words. Good evening, everyone. Um, I've just turned 50 and uh, realised I need to wear glasses. I thought the subject tonight was the good, the bad and the ugly. So I'm going to start off with a couple of good things. Um, over the last 15 years, the, the, the London um, uh, landscape has transformed. Local authorities, after a 40-year break, are starting to develop again uh, with a social mindset and uh, generally trying to do the right thing, which I think is a very good, a good thing. Uh, Claire mentioned that alternative groups are also developing housing. So the um, community land trusts, such as the Camley Street Group, uh, the Start Group in Haringey, and smaller not-for-profits have suddenly entered the market, which I think will definitely transform and, and help raise the bar. The bad. Um, after one Negroni, you probably will get more, more uh, angry as the night goes on, but... Um, there's too much control uh, of the five. I've got five very mediocre house builders uh, in my mind. Um, it's... It, um, they, three of them start with a B. Uh, one starts with a C. And one starts with a P. You probably do the, do the maths. Um, it's, it's a complete rip-off. The whole market is rigged in their favour. Um, you've got things like Help to Buy, which has propped up the entire share value of all of those house builders. They were valueless 10 years ago. They're now worth billions and billions of pounds because of Help to Buy. So they have too much control. Um, the next one is the rip-off contracting industry. Um, too much control again, overreach everywhere, meddling with things they should not be uh, involving themselves with, such as design. Um, it's a fraud. The entire London constr construction market is uh, targeting value erosion. Value um, engineering occasionally gets discussed, but it's value erosion, which, if it's the public sector are paying for that, that in my mind, that is fraud. Uh, help to buy is definitely bad. Um, right to buy is also bad, especially in the cities. I think there are locations around the UK where maybe right to buy could, could just, just about uh, help the situation. The ugly, uh, for me, the majority of built-to-rent housing is an absolute abomination. Uh, you only have to get the train to Gatwick and go through Croydon, and there are some absolute shockers uh, being built by private built-to-rent pension funds. It's a disgrace. Most modular housing and volumetric construction I've witnessed in the UK is also, uh, the, using the title I wrote earlier, crude uh, overscaled and a complete blight on the city. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. That's uh, pretty bleak, really. Uh, so, 
We'll now move on to Canny, and I hope Canny's got something vaguely uh, uplifting to say. Hello. Well, thank you for the space, because it's like such a relief to get a rant in, isn't it? And, um, you know, really, it feels quite good to say out loud a lot of the stuff that, you know, goes round and round and round in your head. Um, and when you start warming to your theme about housing, the sheer absurdity of what we're doing now is, like, quite crushing. Um, but then, you know, you have another Negroni or another beer and you get quite um, mawkish and um, wistful. Um, why the real spaces with sort of real juicy potential um, are so easily turned into non-places, simply um, spreadsheet solutions like built large um, for storing people. And after that, a, a little weaker and weary, you realise that these disempowering rants, if you haven't got a large, feisty audience, like luckily I do tonight, um, it can be a bit depressive. But um, since we all turned up, I think that we understand that there's a problem, but we might not all have the same ideas about the solutions. My kind of... Um, you know, take on this is that the real politics surrounding housing is so strong that fanciful imagination thoughts have to be kept under lock and key. In other fields of design, lateral thinking and sensuous fumblings are given space to develop into full fruition. Housing is a place where it's a crime to seem foolish. Real people have to live there, you know. We've edited out or let others edit out, another story, some of the space we need to breathe and design. The buildings and housing layouts oh, um, with a few great exceptions, um, look like this um, spreadsheet we were talking about. So, I mean, are we complete mugs in this system? Of course we are. We're swimming in this pseudoscience which has subsumed, subsumed richer conversations about place, the existing but also the possible communities we could build, and we know that half the solutions will not be the hardware but the power of ideas to transform our societies. So I don't want to proselytise, but to break out of this stupor of this pseudo-science, I had a few thoughts, um, we need to resist the sirens of off-site solutions. Not because a bit of fa factory production is not useful, but to put it back in its place as part of a huge ecosystem for building and maintaining and, let's face it, humanising our built fabric. I mean, the government has got a shorter and shorter attention span, and this innovative stuff seems to make them happy. It makes a lot of other middlemen very happy. It just does not take in the complexity of building places. It's like a religion. It's a warm inside at those off-site conferences sponsored by Homes England, and they all peddle hope or chastise themselves for not finding the players and the investment to be more wildly innovative and repetitive. So that takes me on to my second big problem, which is repetitive. Yes. Why do we need that? So much like a souped-up old dream, the modular world, just when we're getting so well-equipped in the technology to creative variations. 
variations that could fit, actually fit the landscape, the huge variety of family and new kinds of family, family-like groups. Okay, but first of all with the landscape, why is it not fitting the landscape? I don't like the term abnormals. It sounds like someone has preconceptions and a blinkered outlook, too stiff to enjoy the physicality of life. John Pegg of um, the landscape architects, Craft Pegg, taught me a term which I absolutely love, looking at how architecture can, um, rather than getting around the twists and abnormals of a terrain, the architecture can actually champion that underland by exacerbating its features and listening to, say, where the water wants to go. Sounds quite trippy, but he calls it the surrogate landscape and it makes perfect sense. Making a new layer of built fabric and landscape is a challenge, eking out each corner of its best opportunities, rather than a passive fitting in and mealy-mouthed making do with your, well, probably modular product. Three, more particularity and specificity, and to make that real, co-design. What we need is really, rather than worrying about the standards for each bedroom size, we need to have a bank of square metres that can be traded to make new living scenarios within um, a place. So we, we don't want to run down the road of smaller and smaller places because we're so, so clever at designing small places. We want to just have a bit more freedom within the plan. We need to drive down cars to bring people closer, you know, remembering always that one car is a whole bedroom. Um, and oh, I won't go into it, but the health and happiness, fewer cars, fewer arson cars, you know, at the front of your house. And then lastly, we need to grow our own clients. We need to grow up, we need to, you know, as well as housing associations, developers, community land trusts, we need to get really cosy with green banks, um, investors who have their hashtag ESG policy of environmental, social governance, new prop tech, blockchain, we need to make a property Etsy to build particularity with the long tail, which comes with. Fantastic, Kenny. Thank you very much. <laughs> we might be creeping towards some uh, solutions and suggestions. And so we're going to finish off with Johnny. Hello. Um, I'd never had an Negroni until this evening. Um, so uh, I understand that it's a kind of cocktail, but without any soft drink elements in it. Um, which is good, because um, I thought I was going to have to say something positive about housing this evening, but as it turns out, it, I'm just going to slag it off, so that's fine. Um, so what it really... It, it, I, we're pre-election, and um, everyone's talking about the NHS, as always we do. But it strikes me that um, the how they... The, the built environment sector is just as important as the NHS. I mean, it is the NHS in many ways because it governs our health, our well-being, our happiness. Um, it's also our social, um, our social state. I mean, without our built environment, we, um, you know, we, we don't have a way of connecting with one another, of talking to each other. And our built environment actually dictates how, um, how, how, it, how isolated we are or how communal we are, how well we get on. Uh, it, it basically is at the heart of every other policy aspect across the whole of our policy spectrum as a country. 
And so why, therefore, is it equipped with the least capable bunch of people that you could possibly get um, to do anything? Why is it that, um, you know, w would you put the kind of people who were in charge of the real estate system in the UK in charge of the NHS and ask them to kind of look after the health and welfare and the well-being of the country? You wouldn't, because they've got no qualifications to do it, they've got no capacity to think deeply, and, um, and, and basically they can't, they, they just don't give a shit is basically the, 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 the fundamental problem. And that, as um, Claire said earlier, they're just not in this room. It's like, you know, we're, we're here having the conversation, but the people who are delivering 60 or 70% uh, of, of the country's housing aren't part of this same conversation that we're all trying to have. And actually, it's worse still, because the idea that SMEs, who, by the way, are in... Um, who, uh, the classification for SMEs in this country is, is that, you, you know, you're an SME if you deliver lower than 2,000 dwellings per annum. So basically, under, under anybody else's definition, that's a pretty massive business. And I can tell you for sure that a lot of the SMEs are not delivering very good quality stuff, and a lot of them are just want to be PLCs, who would like, you know, who are mimicking the PLCs. Um, we've got a pretty major problem that I would say that a very, very small fraction of the housing that's delivered in this country is the kind of housing that we uh, really would aspire to. So, so to me, there are a bunch of problems. One is that the, the housing is tied up with volume house builders and that they don't really care about being this part of the conversation, but more, more, more problematically still, they don't really want to have a conversation with their own customers. And anyone who's, who's bought a house from a volume house builder or a, most new house builders will know that it's, it's extraordinarily difficult after you're out of the sales suite and you've actually bought the house to get hold of anybody because they just don't want to talk to you after that. And it's the same before the house uh, is built as well. Nobody wants to engage customers in the process because, frankly, customers are a right pain in the arse and they could, you know, house builders don't really want to have to deal with them because it's complicated and messy having to deal with customers. So that's why they kind of keep themselves um, as far away from the customers as possible. So the second problem is that... Um, that, that estate agents have sort of, you know, and, and agents and land agents um, and ha have become a whole sector in and of themselves because they've filled that gap of talking um, to, to the actual customers and kind of protecting and cosseting away the, um, the, 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 the ultimate, um, you know, the developers and the house builders. And, and they've sort of filled the gap in a... In a, in a in a pretty ineffective way. So our experience at Marmalade Lane was, was, was refreshing because we actually got to speak to our customers and to work alongside them and to understand what they wanted. And we didn't actually have to go and ask agents what they thought that the customers wanted. And I think there are a few things that would have been markedly different if we had. One would have been um, an, estate, an estate agent um, or a, you know, a, a, what they're called new homes agent would have told us that, um, that nobody wants to live in a house that is not detached or semi attached and if we create a terraced housing product that's going to kill £20,000 per unit because it's not semi-detached and if you've seen on new housing estates the kind of one foot distance between one house and another you'll know that that's definitely worth £20,000 of premium. Um, another would have been that people don't attribute any value when they're buying a house to public space. They only value their private space, ideally with an ensuite, even if it's made the bedroom like half the size of what the bedroom would have been otherwise but the ensuite is going to drive another 10k um, and um, and and what they won't uh, what they won't what nobody's going to pay for is the idea of having nice shared public realm decent streets uh, shared space um, that's really kind of quality kind of 
well-designed, cared for, and invested in. That's seen as a cost, and things like en-suites and high-end specification kitchen units are seen as value drivers. And it's nonsense, because what we know is that people hate new-build housing. Most people wouldn't live in new-build housing, given the real choice. And, um, and what people really value are the things that estate agents don't think they value. And the third thing that estate agents would say that... Um, uh, pe people must have would be car, car parking in front of their home where they can see it because you need to look out of your neck curtain and just check every now and again that your car is still there and um, nobody's you know taken it um, and you know and if you don't have that then that's another like 20k that's just off your house price until it's like pretty much nothing the kind of product you know our, what we build just isn't 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 worth anything according in, in a state agent world um, but kind of chasing it down to the real fun more fundamental issue is that the whole land market is is trashed all of this stuff is a manifestation of what's going on underneath which is the land market and the the, the, the real blunt fact is that by the time any land becomes ready to have houses built on it it's probably been transacted on and traded three or four five or six times by speculators and the, and, and, the, and the value of that land is so high that really nothing good can really kind of happen after that because there's not enough budget to build decent stuff there's not enough budget to pay section 106 there's not enough budget to deliver affordable housing and um, no quality can come forward so I'd like later on for there to be questions about trying to get to the root of um, how we how we tackle the land speculation market and the way it underpins the terrible type of housing stock this country is delivering. That's me. Right. Uh, Monday nights are pretty depressing anyway, so um, that's, that's kind of killed it. Um, Let's go home. <laughs> no, don't go home, please. We need to sort it out. So I think the entire rest of the 45 minutes or whatever we've got needs to be, how are we going to sort it out? Sorting out the land market's pretty difficult. Um, I, because Paul was so apocalyptic, I'm going to ask Paul, first of all, which do you think is more powerful as a lever? There's various levers that we can use to get better housing. Uh, we can use planning. We can use these national design codes and guides and standards. We can try and change client culture. Um, there's many other things we can do. What is the sort of number one thing that we could walk out of this room and do that would actually change what we've just been talking about? Uh, all, all about design. I think if... if clients, commission, good designers, urban designers, master planners, architects, engineering teams to work out good solutions. That's the, that's the best way to improve uh, the landscape of British housing uh, right now. And in order to do that, procurement needs to be sorted out. Um, smart clients, both on the public and private sector, need to be brought to the foreground. Bad clients need to be pushed to the background. Um, and that way we can raise the quality of our cities. I think. So it's, for me, design. It is design. Okay, but then you've got to get someone who commissions it. Okay, now I want to ask any of our four speakers, uh, and indeed anyone in the room, does good design cost more? I think I know the answer to that one. Um, who pays if it does? Um, and is it worth more? And who says it is? Does anyone want to talk about whether it costs more and who should pay for that cost if it does? Think about a tomato, okay? So you go to Italy, you eat an amazing tomato in a fantastic Italian restaurant. Tomatoes have never tasted that good since you were about four years old. Now, that tomato probably cost more to get it to where it is, but uh, people on low incomes can't afford really, really tasty, fantastic tomatoes. So who is going to pay for nice homes or nice tomatoes for everybody? Anybody want to have a go at that, either as speakers or Johnny? 
I, I don't think good design costs more, but I do think bad design costs less. <laughs> so I think that the, the real problem is that we need to work back from what the, what the right level of housing design quality is and then calibrate everything according to that. And there's way too much uh, kind of idea that everything else in the process is fixed and therefore we can't afford to spend more on design. And the fact is that the volume house builders... Um, you know, building it like 100, you know, bare build costs of like 100 pounds a foot. There's no way that a decent product can be can be built at that level. It's an artificial. Um, it's not, you know, and and the architects aren't used. As you said earlier, they're not engaging the right. You know, they're not engaging teams to build good quality stuff. They're kind of spewing out terrible, terrible product that has very little enduring value over a long time. And but it can't, people are, you know, still, it's, it's people are still buying it, right? Pe people are buying it because they have literally no choice other than to buy this stuff. I mean, you know, and I think that the house builders, you know, ha have said as much that we'll, you know, I think one of the PLC chairman or chief executives stood up at a, a property event and said, we keep on building this rubbish, but people keep on buying it, and so we're going to carry on building it. Any, uh, Annalie or Canny? What, for a solution or... Um, <laughs> does, it co does good design cost more? And if so, um, who's, well, who should pay for it that? It does, because it takes longer. Um, so I don't think we can pretend that doing good design is, is as easy as doing bad design. But I think it needs to be looked at in the long term and the value that good design brings... Um, and I, you know, it's not quantified, is it? So you, you, you're either someone gets it on the client body, or they don't, and they don't, or they don't care because um, they're just selling it on. I think that, I think that one of the interesting things about council housing is that they know they're going to have to keep it and maintain it, so they actually care more about getting good design than if someone's selling it immediately. Um, but in terms of the volume house builders and the problem, I'm, you know, I'm. I'm massively frustrated with the fact that they're allowed to build um, in locations that are completely reliant on car use. Um, and if you look at them at, from the aerial thing, you know, walking around would be absolute nightmare because they're all like a bin lorry tracking um, with, with houses just dotted around. Um, they're not de they're not designed at all. And the carbon um, impact of those kind of designs of making everyone have to get into their car to travel anywhere. If, if they could be taxed on the carbon that the impact of their design has, then it would be a massive change because they'd have to design near, near um, public transport. They'd have to, you know, they, so I don't know. We just, we need to tax them. Right, so we're getting our sticks out now. We st haven't found any carrots, but we're certainly finding sticks which are tax and possibly a much stiffer planning process. Canny? Yeah, I think... Um that is this working? Yeah, it's working. Okay. Um, I think that the, the, one of the problems is we think about this product landing and then it's got to be designed really well and it's finished. Whilst if we could think about it more as um, a place that was evolving and see how much we could leave unfinished in terms of landscaping, um, dealing with um, obviously fire trucks important, but maybe this thing about adoptable roads, this thing about hedgerows and, and shared spaces. All of that can can um, can actually um, be designed with occupants and neighbourhoods between neighbours, and the same goes for the inside of these houses. So I think that there's just um, we need to have we need to start understanding that there's 
nothing is ever finished and a house can be unfinished when it's handed over to its new um, design guardians. What do you think about the role of speakers or anyone in the room of standards in general, uh, the national standards, the new ones and the national design codes they want to do? Do you think that will improve everybody's product or not? Uh, so, if you um, can, if everyone who picks up the mic shouts their name out, hello. that would be great. So, um, I'm Neil. I'm Johnny's colleague. So, we're doing a bit of town pincer movement on it. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so, um, no, I don't think it will make any difference because um, although I think the the national design guide is a laudable document, you know, in the end, it's it's still uh, an element of all things to all people, and you know, um, it, it doesn't tackle the process issues, which is what happens if, as Johnny said, you know, all of the value's been extracted prior to anyone actually designing something and it doesn't deal with the kind of issue of what happens if you know a particularly uh, old school highways uh, man and it is always men uh, get hold of um, get hold of the project so I mean I, I think the more fundamental issue is that um, you know we, we we have a way of making policy frameworks in the UK in our very centralized system that are um, that are driven by basically um, a mentality that says that if there are no market externalities and the market will provide and the mentality of government is that housing is an entirely private activity and actually if you if you get it right in particular areas so where there's loads of land value the land value can pay for the roads and you know there's a good analogy here which is roads are infrastructure but bus services are, are costly revenue activities that are not infrastructure which kind of is, is one to me is one of the framing issues of what's wrong with our way of thinking about place and movement but but actually if you go to a side, for example where there's no land value for anything then you just can't have anything basically that's the that's the kind of mentality and I just think that we need to get uh, as, a, as a country and at a basic policy level back to the idea that you know housing is a fundamental part of our infrastructure and it shouldn't have to pay for itself um, it absolutely should be part of the same policy mix that sees us spend hundreds of billions every year on the NHS some of it incidentally caused by the fact that we create a besogenic uh, environments um, you know that, that actually means that when we're looking at uh, if you like, industrial-level carbon emissions, then things like cap-and-trade systems and carbon taxes are now part of the conversation. But the idea that you would put your built environment sector into that and actually look at it, as Annalise suggested, at a kind of project-by-project -project basis is missing. So I think the answer is that housing should be paid for as part of a sensible mixed-economy national programme for sorting ourselves out. And I don't think it ought to be just back down to, you know, land value and cross-subsidy within projects and all the rest of it. I think we should see it as, you know, every bit as important... As as Johnny suggested, as the as the National Health Service or or, or anything like that. Okay. Okay. So we've had a tax. So the taxpayer is funding uh, the necessary gap. Is I think the executive summary of that. Okay. Fantastic. Um, right. I'm going to open out to the audience. Uh, who's who loves house builder housing and thinks we're all a bunch of total snobs? Anybody? Or does anybody want to say something else about the solution to how we get better housing in the UK? And I can see Russell dying to speak. Um, thank. I'm 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 Russell. Um, so uh, I, I take issue with this issue, with this this comment. Not not it was a not that it was a proposition, but um, actually ba uh, bad design costs more. It just depends on the time frame that we're talking about. I mean, you are, your tomato analogy is is an interesting one. You know, you could pay a little bit more for a beautiful uh, tomato from Italy or some some sort of thing grown in Holland. That's fine. But the morning after, if one of them gives you the shits, 
That's the question. You know, what is the long-term? What is the long-term impact of this stuff? And the problem is that we're focusing on architects. You know, your fee might be a little bit more, or the cost of building a home might be a little bit more. But we never look at the impact in terms of 5, 10, 20, 50 years' time. And we know that the housing that is of quality will have a, you know, a greater uh, impact in, on, in mental health, physical health, all of these things which have an impact on uh, social services, on the NHS, all of that sort of stuff. So we concentrate everything on the, the, the bit at the beginning. How can we shave 5, 10, 20% off the architect's fees? How can we get build costs down by, you know, £100 a square, square metre or whatever? But actually, we're not ignoring the long-term effect of this stuff. Yes, and I mean, the obvious response to that is that the short-term house builders don't care uh, monkeys about that stuff um, for good business reasons. Anybody else want to comment on what Russell said? Uh, so I've got a question right at the back. That's great. Can we give this lady a mic, please? And can you say your name? Hi, I'm Helen. I'm a journalist. Um, so um, I grew up in the countryside, and I can't believe I'm defending or indeed putting forward the countryside's case, being an urban adopter, but here I am. Um, I would posit that the panel perhaps is being a bit metropolitanly urbanist about um, car usage and having cars within um, the complexes that you're talking about, because I, as someone who grew up in the countryside, knew knows that there's only a bus every two hours, and the beaching report pretty much destroyed the railway network, particularly in, in rural areas. So I think um, it's unrealistic to assume or to create complexes that don't have um, provision for cars, um, controversial that may be. So, um, yeah, panel, do you have any responses to that? Who in the panel would like to say something? Um, Johnny. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I felt like cars had been pummeled enough, so I didn't mention my thoughts about cars. Um, but I, I think that... Um, most people don't live in the countryside, and um, but but very often, and we see this all the time on Twitter, is that when somebody says there should be fewer cars, somebody will always say, yeah, but lots of places in rural kind of UK just don't have adequate public transport systems. And of course, at a point, that's totally fair enough, but it's not a good reason for our cities not to have adequate transit systems. And... Um, you know, I'm a I, I massive believer in towns and cities as being just sensible ways of concentrating people into a space that just makes sense if you if you provide the right sort of services, including transport to go with them. But I, I sort of think, you ha of course, we can't expect rural outlying settlements to have decent public transport. And of course, the car is going to play a role in that. But what we can't do is take that argument and then say the suburbs of cities need to have cars at the expense of public transport. Because every time we, we allow new buildings, new homes to have cars, we're making an active investment decision, which is we're attributing land value and we're attributing build value foregone, and kind of like, you know, the foregone value of other ha of real estate, of housing. Um, we're giving that value to cars. So we're making an active investment decision to prioritise cars when it actually could have gone into public transport. So I do think that you, you have a very valid point that um, the countryside is a, is a case apart, but what I really object to is people saying, and therefore it's not right to say that people in cities shouldn't play by different rules because we can and should and must. Okay, I'm going to give so, you. Can I say something? Um, yes. we, we did this study in the Oxford Cambridge corridor, and we looked at all the rural villages. When you look at them, they're only one or one and a half miles apart because they were traditionally walking distance. 
if you, no one would walk them now because all those roads are uh, completely taken over by traffic and they were never wide enough to take more than walking or horse. So no one would dare to walk between those villages, but they are completely walkable. But everyone who lives in those villages thinks they uh, desperately need their car. And so I don't know where you are from, but honestly, a lot of villages are walking distance away. So with an electric bike, you could just whiz around and you wouldn't need a car. I, I think there are very few, very remote settlements that aren't that can't access public transport somehow. And like, obviously, they would need a car, but the majority can. Okay, I'd like to go to Sarah. I think it was, and then to Lee. Um, yes, I've been um, thinking quite a lot recently about sort of national housing policy, and that actually. Should we have one? Because for, for decades now, maybe forever, um, housing policy is just driven by numbers. It's, that's all it's about. And sometimes it's about housing in the north, less housing in the north or reprovision, more housing in the south. And it just sort of moves around depending on the political spectrum. But I think it is really too crude to expect our housing just to be driven by numbers and then below that it sort of filters down. So poor councils, you know, have thousands of homes to deliver each year, which they're either not able to do themselves or don't have the resource to make sure it's done any other way. And I just think, what if we had a policy where government gave equal amounts of money to every local authority in the, count, in the country, irrespective of rural or urban, and those authorities could decide, either working together, like under the GLA, or just in small clusters, you know, in a good old localism way, that, you know, how housing was delivered, and so it's th not driven that. So I think Sarah's talking about de devolution, which could do with happening politically, generally, anyway, and people sorting out their own problems, which does happen to an extent. Housing tends to follow jobs, doesn't it? So we need a national uh, industrial strategy as well as a national housing policy. Um, Lee, can someone give Lee a mic? Hi, Lee Mallet. Um, <clears throat> the ugliest thing to me about housing is uh, not necessarily what gets built, but the grotesque distortions in the housing market, which have been around for uh, 30, 40 years now. And uh, until the land market, the market in land can be adjusted so that it supplies more, um, all of the resources of house builders will be devoted to acquiring that first important factor of production, the site. And they have to kind of concentrate their resources in order to do that. So all of those things, like good design standards and all the rest of it, are subjugated to that imperative. And um, we need to find a way of clearly stating regularly how much housing we need of what kind, and then pull the lever on the planning system to make sure that that land is designated and available because all other factors are kind of driven. If, if you have a mixed economy, the market element is driven totally by that factor. And I think what I'd like to see is the planning system operate in a version of reality that recognises what 
exactly is the amount of housing and the type of housing that we need. Because until it does that effectively, it won't operate properly. And I just wanted to pick on something that Paul uh, mentioned, which is this um, weight of investment money that is desperate to get into the housing market because the global investment market recognises in the UK that there is an enormous shortage of the right kind of housing and there is a lot of money trying to get into providing that housing rented, social rented as well and local authorities who are desperately trying to reinvent their housing portfolios to deliver that housing are having to operate in this distorted market in a political system that uh, prioritises private ownership and we need, we need to lobby and argue for a different political approach to delivering the housing we need that recognises the reality better. Thank you. Does anyone want to respond to Sarah's or Lee's points or indeed make a new point of their own? Because there's a danger that this all just comes I, I, back I, to land and that is the end of the story, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I will, because, because I think there is a little bit of context being discussed with what Anna Lee was saying. We got a little bit distracted by the issue of cars and transportation and infrastructure. And then it's brought back in with Sarah then Lee, bringing it back into context. And yes, land is the main issue, but if you take a, an example of, say you know, um, 1950s Wilson block estates in the outside of northern cities that are just built so badly and have an aesthetic quality that just is just absolute dull. And then you look at the kind of market during the CDR um, crisis, 2007-2008, in the west coast of America, although it's not British housing, it happened here too, where you see lots and lots of speculative um, housing being built with no context. But the former had a context on the edge of the city. It had issues in terms of movement and displacement of people. Um, but at that time, the transport infrastructure was as bad. The birth of the car or the growth of the, the car and how we are materialist people and, and love our motor car and possibly more in our house or how our house looks like. It just I think we're coming all around. I, th I think I would want to bring it around to a full circle and start talking about the, 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 how the context of British housing starts to affect the look of it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Paul's scheme up in, in King's Court, which is, I think, is a fantastic scheme, particularly um, the, the courtyards arrangement and the work with the, 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 the Henley Brown stuff as well with the, the existing um, re retrofitted housing, which I think is often um, 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 ignored and, and, and not really appreciated as much. And that has a new aesthetic quality which doesn't been tarnished with the, 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 the kind of public's view on poor looking social housing. It's social housing that can look smart all of a sudden. Um, that's in an urban situation. I would like to ask the panel if there's anything like that in the rural or non-urban or maybe the suburban situation where there's a little bit more kind of um, less dense schemes, yeah? It goes back to what Who'd you like were saying, Annalie. Yeah. Anyone in the panel, I think. So we're getting better at urban architecture, is your... I think so, yeah. But we're not so good elsewhere, except that Annalie's disproven I, that one. Well, I think um, that a lot of people think rural housing should be suburban. Um, I've got a big personal problem with suburban housing 
having grown up in it. Um, and it's really awful. It's really hard to meet people and there's nowhere to hang out. And I look at all, everything that we now think of as being rural is not rural. Actually, rural places can be quite dense. Or, um, so there's, there's, it, it's weird. We need to get rid of the suburban model. We need to get, we need to change um, the densities that people expect housing to be built to. Um, and just, yeah, it's so frustrating. Suburban is not rural. And why are all these schemes that we're seeing suburban? And I think that it's um, maybe a quite a patriarchal idea about the house with the wife that stays at home. You've got your... You've got, I'm being, trying to be deliberate controversial. <laughs> um, you've got your drive. And as someone said, it's not necessarily about seeing your house on your drive. It's about your neighbours seeing you washing your sorry car your neighbor seeing you washing your car on a sunday and you know that it's all about that and 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 the first i i would really like kind of rural um councils to massively reconsider densities and base them on the densities of the actual places themselves and not the suburban models um, um, can i ask in the room who grew up in suburbia that's uh, about 20%, maybe. Okay. And what do you think of what Annalie just said about suburbia, suburban densities, community life, etc.? I think it was pretty good, actually. Um, and I, you know, sorry, go on. Um, yeah, I totally agree with Annalie. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and I recently accidentally had to move back there for a few months. And it was noticeable <laughs> just how hard it is to do everything because suddenly you think, oh shit, the last train's at 10.30 and then it's a 45-minute train and then I have to walk 20 minutes from the station and I, can't, I don't even go past a little Tesco. So then if I haven't got any food at home, I can't get any food. And then just, it just feels like it's a nothing place. Like, and when I was there, I was feeling like, I'm just waiting to leave this place. I feel like I'm 15 again, thinking, God, life is happening somewhere else. And I think, yeah, a lot of the new housing we build is like that, like it's like an extension of what we already have in the suburbs and another semi-detached house with room for two cars. And you think, yeah, but you don't get to do anything there and it's, it's I don't know. Right, I'm going like to sound a hackney klaxon now. Um, so the, per the gentleman next to me would like to say something. I, I also grew up in a suburb, kind of. Um, not in this country, but where I lived. Um, it was about 25-minute cycle ride to the centre of town, and if you kind of grow up with the situation, you can drink and, you know, return home um, on a bicycle after the last tram has gone. Uh, there was a tram also, by the way, so <laughs> that helps. Um, you know, if my parents needed to get something with the car, that was fine, but I just cycled five minutes to the nearest supermarket and got milk. Um, so suburbs can be done right, to be fair. And... Holland. <laughs> QED. Right. Johnny. Uh, I think it's really interesting. The, the whole word suburbs has, has sort of been degraded in meaning since it first existed. Because I live in a suburb, but I live in an inner Victorian suburb of a city. And um, all it meant was that it wasn't the city centre, it was the ring around the city centre. And I think that was an honourable thing. It was a different quality of life from the city centre, slightly slower, ever so slightly lower density. But it's become something quite different from that. And I think, again, it's the house, the house builder sort of view of a suburb is like that kind of privet drive sort of view of what the suburbs are. And I think that because, the, the, because a lot of housing is built at, at insufficiently low density, like around 12 dwellings per acre, 
And if you do that over acre after acre after acre, you can't have a tram and you can't have a supermarket five minutes walk from everybody's home. It's just not, it's not possible just because the maths don't allow you to... You, you just don't have a sufficient concentration of people. So I think... But, but on the other hand, I grew up in Tunbridge Wells. Um, uh, it made me who I am. So not much to commend it, really. But... Um, <laughs> uh, but it was a very, but it was a kind of pla- kind of like a peaceful, kind of quite nice childhood. And I, even though I regularly diss it now, I have to be honest with myself and say it was a, it was a, it was okay. But I, so I think the big challenge for us is to kind of reinvent what suburbs mean. And it's like to say, what are the qualities of suburbs that actually appeal to people and that people yearn for? Because there are definitely some things about it that people are after. It's something about the quality of life, the quality of environment for children, the greenness. Um, some of these things are bucolic imagination. Some of them are actually real things. And I think we need to take it. Seriously, and say what are the suburbs? But let's do it in a real way that engages with the mathematic reality. That if you start building at ten dwellings per acre, nothing is going to be any good. We need to we need to provide those real qualities of place at a at a at a level of density that makes some sense. Have we got more? Come on. Can someone give Canny a mic? Oh, sorry. You know, going back to the thing that we we're trying to drive this all with policy and numbers and. Um, you know, it's true that a lot of these suburbs, so-called, are just actually cul-de-sacs off um, a, a new roundabout, which leads to another roundabout. So they're not really... There's no interconnective tissue. But I think that the, um, the real problem is, is that we, we've just got to stop um, thinking about these places that can be delivered by one of the Bs or the Cs or, or a P, because that, that's actually a way of rebuilding the British class system for the next 200 years or whatever. Um, you know, it, it literally, you see the sort of countryside down to Belway, and those kids won't play together. It's just really evil. Anyone else? Yes, we've yes, got... Yes, yes, urban or suburban. The problem for me is still the say, same. Um, say who you are, and have you got a mic? Yes, I have. Cool. I Shout into it. Yes, hello, I'm Marco, good evening. Yeah, urban and suburban, the problem is still the same. And the question is, uh, who is this house builder creating value for? For the people living in them, and particularly the PSC that were mentioned before, that all the larger share of the market, are they creating value just for the return on investment of their shareholders? And if you look at it, it's a completely different problem. Okay, anybody want to respond to that? Paul? I actually, I know we've we've had a housing crisis since 1919, with the exception of five years during the Second World War. It's a, it's an, a, we've the UK has had an official housing crisis. So I think we're actually building too much. I think the point earlier about numbers was absolutely crucial. Uh, people setting targets, we never meet housing targets for you know 99 years. We've been trying to hit them, and every year we fail. Um, so I, th- I think it should all be about building quality. Um, and I think if the house builders actually build less it would actually put less pressure on the wider construction industry, which probably means uh, they could build better at a lower price. Because at the moment, everything in the system is inflationary, um, which then requires more subsidy, which becomes then more inflation. Um, so I think just build a bit less, but make it really good and, and uh, well-designed, and then, then we all get, end up with a better neighbourhood. Could I throw it out there? OK, I think I've got Tessa. Hi, Tessa. I'm... Uh from a housing association and uh, I think the numbers thing is totally right. We are choosing to buy poor Section 106 stuff 
We have very little design control over, and we're just saying, yeah, fine, we'll have it. And actually, I think there's a falsehood in that uh, local authorities, social housing are good clients, that we build good buildings, that we're proud. Actually, because we're involved, we want to build durable buildings. And we design out, or we put a big red circle around, and we do it, I've done it. We put red rail circle around things that are already lovely because it might get kicked apart by our residents. And so I think we need to be a bit, little bit careful about thinking, and I say that from a housing association point of view, that, that registered providers are always good clients and, and we can trust them entirely. Don't, don't trust us. <laughs> don't trust Tessa, everyone. Don't give her your money. Can I just throw out there the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission? Does anyone want to sort of boo or whistle or anything like that? Um, what do you think they're up to and do you think they'll achieve anything? And if you, if you got to go and speak to them tomorrow and give them half an hour of your time, what would you say? Um, I, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't rise to it because it's a political statement about um, class, I think. Um, and I think the issue really is about how we share space and how we share space in the countryside. And I think your point, Annalie, about villages is I grew up in a village before I moved to London and I think you're, and, and, and on a cul-de-sac, which is fantastic. So it was like the perfect combination of a space to play and that kind of density that you're talking about. But I think the problem with the building better, beautiful building, beautiful building thing... They're known as 4BC now. Keep going. Uh, I've got it. I've got it now. Um is that what they're trying to do is take the emphasis away from this idea of shared, sharing spaces and getting us to argue about what things look like because that's where the point of sale hits us all. Um, it's a bit like when you argue about um, when you're buying a house when, you, when, it, when it boils down to whether or not the person's going to leave the washing machine behind at the end, which is the... 2% of the 2% of the 2%. That's not the... The point is, if we get, our, if we get cross with, with, with the Tories about beautiful buildings, then we're getting cross with this issue of, of kind of land and ownership. And, and actually, what we need to challenge them on is this idea of how we want to live together as human beings and how we want to share the countryside and how we want to have access and equitable space. Um, and we need to turn the argument back on itself. I, I, I always think that we need to think less about elevations and more about sections. And they don't know what the hell we're talking about when we say that. But what we mean is that bit between where we live and where you live and where we share that space, it's not about how the building looks, which is what you started with, Annalie. It's about the bits in between, I think. So we've just got to change the argument, That's I think. That's why you're losing the public. If it's not about how the building looks... Well, then... then... So can someone give a mic to Rory? I think that's Rory. Yes, you do. It's <laughs> simple. The, you know, this debate tonight was meant to be about whether or not the architecture we're designing looks good, and everybody's too scared to talk about that. I mean, Let's talk about it then. Start well, us yeah, off. Well, Come on. Well, I mean, it would be interesting to know. And also, we haven't talked about council housing that much. We've been talking about houses to buy, which I find quite unusual, because the big crisis is about people who can't even afford to get on the ladder. And, you know, the Sterling Prize was given to a council house project, but my understanding of that council house project is that actually uh, it's for sale as well to residents and there aren't any major plans to replace that council housing as well. So there's two issues. One, council housing. We're not talking about it. The other thing is aesthetics do matter in my view. Elevations do matter. I think AutoCAD has destroyed the uh, ability of architects to actually compose an elevation over the last 20, 30 years. So I think that is an issue. 
And I think just to say, oh, the Tories are saying this and the Tories are saying that, there might be Tories in this room. I mean, I can't believe there would be, but there might be. There might be. And it's an issue. It's an issue that you should wrestle with because you spend a lot of the time working out how to make things look. So it has to be a mixture of all three. Well, one, one of the things, I think... Someone give Steve the mic, please. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought it on back onto aesthetics. The the, the King's Court scheme I, I I was mentioning it's King's Court, isn't it? Kingly Court, King's Crescent, sorry, um, King's Crescent scheme. The, the the aesthetic aspect of that I really liked was the retrofit element, which was re recladding council housing. And it was a fabric that had a mixture of brick, glass, metal, and so on. But my favourite bit about that was that it had a kind of very Euro feel to it. I liked the glass balconies, and the aesthetic quality was good because instead of the just seeing stuff behind the glass balcony, it kind of worked with the whole cladding, and it, and it was it was it was it was it was done with care. And I think um, we we the the the. the we fall into the trap now as architects and aesthetics of just going down the easy option of recladding any kind or cladding any type of architecture with brick usually i mean there's a few exceptions out there and there's a few inventive ways of doing it but that's a, that's as much as an architectural design intent is as much what's going to get you through planning and also the cost of not going with a uh, a strange material which is hard to get building regs with, you know, currently post-Grenfell, that's, that's given us problems. But there's a lot of other material qualities which you can deal with, um, particularly recladding council estates. You know, uh, you see a huge stock of old council estates and old tower blocks which have been reclad really badly. And I always think that's kind of interesting because it's a new face, it's a new hat or it's a new... Um, waistcoat for a building um, which is trying to sort of bring itself into being better for the people who, who, who live there and, 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 and I think it's good to bring it back into the, the aesthetics of council housing this. Okay so I think what Steve would say and I think what he said to me earlier is you know basically we're getting a whole load of beige boxes and I'm really bored of it, that's Steve not me um, and so what has happened so I pose the question to anyone in the room, is it because there's a massive breakdown in a relationship between architects and builders so you just don't get the sort of interesting details anymore is factory building actually making that worse or could it make it better um, who, who thinks that housing in London, urban housing is terminally boring, do they think it's because of the London Housing Design Guide or why do they think that's happened, why is it all sort of normalised into a bland gravy of new homes nobody knows the answer I mean I think it is partly the new London vernacular, everything is just, just kind of a grid with bricks and the stuff that isn't and is luxury is just glazed crap which is actually somehow even worse than the run of the mill new London vernacular um, but to be honest, I mean, there's a lot of innovative stuff happening elsewhere. I mean, Lakaton Vassal won the, um, the prize for the recladding the council housing with the, these amazing glass extensions. And it's not easy. And even in the French context, that's something that they have to fight for quite, uh, quite ferociously. But um, it's also that there's no money to do the recladding of the council blocks. I mean, the, the reason why Grenfell, Grenfell was because 
that was the cheapest thing and they literally went with the cheapest thing the next cheapest thing was two pounds per square meter more or something like that and they didn't um and then if you ask well you you just have to have a client like hackney council who can then use some of that captured money to do something nicer with the recladding and the refer but not everyone can do that and if there's no money from elsewhere then you'll you you either won't or you'll go Grenfell way and do you think there's also an issue about what the, the the people who live in the housing actually want as well I mean I'm not just thinking of people who buy their house but council tenants too I remember doing a survey of about 250 units in Drum Chapel many many years ago Wilson block 1950s tenements are falling to bits and the most um, common kind of thing that people wanted was for their houses to look better. Not the fact that they were leaking and massive energy losses and so forth. They just wanted it to look better. Can I say something? Uh, I'm Sarah. I'm an architect. I recently moved to work at Lewisham Homes um, to deliver their council housing. And I think one of the big problems is the numbers, a bit like what you said before, Sarah. So what we have actually is we either deliver numbers for people who really need homes. So we either deliver the homes or we deliver fewer really good quality homes. So I found myself in this little argument because I want to deliver as many homes as I can to house people that really need them. But to do that, you have to make cuts elsewhere. Um, and there's this constant battle between, you know, do we make it more sustainable and spend a bit more money or do we just provide even more homes? And something else I've kind of felt in the, in the room here while we've been talking a lot about owning homes is we're all part of the problem. I'd say that most people in this room probably own their own home, my own two, my own three, and, you know, we're part of the problem. Um, so... I think it's been a real learning curve for me, moving client side, and there's a lot left unsaid in this room. Um, I think we need to be very careful about easily dismissing the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. Um, I went to the interim launch of their, uh, well, sorry, the, the launch of their interim report, and actually there was very, very little in there about aesthetics. And one of the visits that they did was they went to Johnny's scheme at Marmalade Lane, and they were la waxing lyrical about it. I think it's wonderful, and a lot of the stuff that they talk about is all the things that we would agree with. Walkable neighbourhoods, uh, you know, the dominance of the car over the public realm. We can get on board with a lot of this stuff, and I think it's very dangerous if we simply just dismiss it as an argument about aesthetics, when actually a lot of the things that they're interested in are these issues and about build quality. And we've had discussions about procurement and how you build these things better. So we shouldn't just assume it's it's some ridiculous uh, discussion around you know Corinthian columns. It's it's far more nuanced than that. A lot of it will be about that, but don't just dis dismiss it outright. And at the end of the bar. Um, my name's Charlotte. I have nothing to do with architecture at all. Hooray. <laughs> um, uh, I live in a housing cooperative and I've lived there for nine years and it's been the most um, transformative experience. And I think what's interesting listening is something about the idea of good housing has been talked about a lot tonight. And I was wondering, 
questioning who is defining what is good housing. Is it architects? Is it planners? Is it the, you know, the, the kind of capitalist system we live in? Or is it us as individuals all experiencing how we live? And I think uh, the idea about in-between spaces is fundamental to the housing cooperative I live in. So it's designed um, so we can just literally see each other. There are walkways we're forced to walk around, and this is amazing. We have a communal space with washing machines, which is greener. You just have to say hello to each other. And I think coming back to, I don't know who is speaking over here about these spaces in between, I think they are more important than the aesthetic of the housing we're living in personally. So just throwing that out there. That's great. And it's what's interesting is when you talk to a lot of council developers and other developers, they have a big framework for architects, but they don't have one for landscape architects. And that's uh, one of the changes I'm trying to make uh, in the work I'm doing. Does anyone else want to talk about the 4BC or something like that? Can I just answer the thing about quality in council housing? Go for it. Um, so um, when we did the project for Norwich City Council, they, they could get nine high quality passive houses or 10 standard houses. Um, so that's so you know it's it's a ten percent saving to do a, nor a normal house. I they did lots and lots of research into fuel poverty and found out that if you give a person a passive house and their fuel bills go down, they can actually afford to eat um, and and live. So a lot of people who've moved into um, the houses actually had to rely on food banks. They could, literally couldn't feed themselves because they had to pay for their fuel bills and their rent in the private rental sector. And we've had so many letters from people thanking us, which has never happened before, because of and describing their lives before they moved in. And I think we are so lucky. We, we don't know how people are having to live at the moment. And those 100 people are just the tip of a massive iceberg. So I would say, if you can do anything to provide high-quality homes that, that they don't have to pay such high fuel bills on, you'll, the, the, the knock-on effect is massive onto those people's lives and their mental health, their well-being. Um, so, yes, make, I'd say... So it's the classic uh, social value bond, isn't it? If you're the government, yeah. you put in some money, that builds you the passive house, and then you reap that money back later through saved NHS and bills. We it's are blissfully unaware of the real issues that people are facing. Thank I you. Think. I think that's right. And I've got... Well yeah, Neil from town again. Uh, the, um, so the, the 4BC, I think that part of the... I mean, part of the the beef that those of us of a progressive mindset have with them um, because it you know it's been instituted by a Tory government and has you know had Roger Scruton as its uh, head and everything is this idea that they're basically just trying to look for a way to kind of codify classicism into policy um, and it's quite a difficult thing for people like me because you know I think that we should have um, you know, elevations that have some proportionality to them. I think we should have many front doors onto the street. I think we should have a relationship between the street section and the building shoulder. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about this stuff and then you suddenly find yourself going, my God, am I a kind of classicist by the back door? Um, uh, and actually, Marmalade Lane has many of the qualities of classicism that the BBBBC like, and so does Goldsmith Street and, and all the rest of it. Um, and yet, you look at the, the 4BC, and um, it's a very London-centric group 
partly because of who they are and partly because of where the you know where the action is. Um, but actually, if you look at you know where people choose to live by virtue of where the house prices are, which is usually a pretty good measure of kind of aesthetic virtue elsewhere in the country. So if you go to Sheffield or Newcastle or Manchester, what you will find is everybody chooses to live in uh, two to three storey red brick terraces with one or two bay windows uh, and a nice porch and stone lintels. And I think that one of the things that the 4BC alighted on, which I do think is an issue for the architecture profession, is this notion that we're obsessed or that you, because I'm not one, are obsessed with perpetual novelty, that actually every project has to have something about it that makes it different from everything else. And so one of my beefs with the beef with the new London vernacular is what the hell is wrong with well-proportioned brick elevations? I mean, you know, they may be a bit boring and all the rest of it, but if the alternative is some kind of Trespa-clad monstrosity, just give us sober, you know, originality, sober unoriginality. And so I think there's a difference in the architecture world between creativity and skill. There are loads of architects out there who've got loads of creativity, but it takes real skill to make something that actually, you know, looks and feels very familiar, but kind of just is, has got a kind of patina and a robustness of quality. And I think that to that extent, the BBBC kind of has touched a, a good nerve and a nerve that we should keep working at to try and get the right sort of conversation going. So do you think we should keep the 4BC at the urban scale where they seem to be doing well, but not at the elevation yeah, I, scale? I mean, I, you know, for, for, for our sins, yeah, we spent a bit of time with Nick Boy Smith and, yeah, he came to Marmalade Lane and I, I hold him in quite high regard and, you know, we have absolutely no political overlap at all, but, you know, he's quite a charming, likeable, patrician Tory sort, sort, of, sort of chap. And he, you know, I, I think that their understanding of walkable neighbourhoods and how you use, you know, form-based codes or transect-based codes and things like that to plan places is absolutely fantastic. And I think they're, you know, it, I literally think that in some cases the, the difference between them and the rest of us is just that they kind of quite like columns. You know, it, it really is like a kind of, you know, Greek formalism that, that, that some of them like. Um, but then you read the piece in Failed Architecture where they're a very, very good piece, but basically saying this was like a far-right agenda. And I, I was horrified by it because I'm like, well, I actually have some sympathy for what they're saying about urban planning and but also this point Rory raised about aesthetics so I don't know how you navigate that and it's all a very febrile world at the moment where we're everyone's slinging accusations of fascist and communist to each other but I, I do think that there is some common ground around uh, you know around urban planning level the kind of thing the Dutch just do a second nature and I mean I'll say this as I say every time I ever speak at anything it's like why can't we just import the Dutch system wholesale, just copy it. We're obviously crap at it by comparison. So let's just bring the whole thing over, including obviously municipalities employing about 120 planners. But um, sorry, I'm getting carried away, but you get the idea. We're going to go over to my right here and then over to Rob after that. Hi, um, my name's Ioni. I uh, work in a local authority outside of London. Um, and woo! And I just, uh, I wanted to ask if any of the panel members had calculated the social the social value on their projects as an actual monetary value and whether there was a way of utilising that or, uh, at, at, in order to get leverage, uh, whether it's with developers, house builders or planners and, and put that out there. Panel, anybody ever tried to do numbers on uh, lack of obesity or better uh, job prospects or anything for their residents? It's a very, very, very interesting question. Um, I think it's a little bit too early because a lot of the buildings have only just been finished. The sort of first wave of uh, council projects are only just finishing off. I think it'll take five to ten years to see the real values 
coming through in health, well-being, education, opportunity for the kids on the estates. Um, but you can calculate it in theory. There are whole spreadsheets of, worth of and consultants worth yeah. of people doing it at the moment. OK, we'll find one. Thank you. Hooray. <laughs> yes, I've tried. It was too hard, Claire. Rob. Sorry, yeah, I just wanted to say um, from the earlier comment about Nicholas Boysmith being an affable Tory or... Affable Patricia, uh, whatever. Affable, I think you need to be really worried about people but like Nicholas Boysmith who puts a, a nice face on Create Streets who, when actually they are propagating essentially false data, manipulated data, however you want to see it. They use certain... Uh, questionnaires and statistics to prove their theories which are based on absolutely nothing so I think Create Street should create put absolute fear in our hearts and the more I sometimes wonder actually giving him a platform to speak is terrifying because he's so uh, persuasive when you meet when you meet him or when you hear him speak but actually it's all bollocks so be careful okay and Johnny's going to defend the bollocks now yeah I mean I, I, it's <laughs> I'm the 1%. I'm defending the bollocks. <laughs> um, that's my CV. Um, I, I, I sort of think that we're... You know, my, my enemy's enemy is my friend is something to bear in mind here. And I think I just ur would urge everyone to always try and find common ground because we've got such a massive problem in this country with the way we house people and we're falling so far short of what we should be doing as a civilised country to, to put people in good... Well, to house people pr properly and with dignity, that actually, if we end up in a an argument about about something when we don't need to or where, where there is common ground, I think we should always seek out the common ground, and we should always, of course, have disagreements and proper arguments and and work things out. But I just think that sometimes people are very quick to 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 put words in other people's mouths, and I saw that on 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 Twitter immediately after. Um, uh, uh, Annalise's scheme won the Sterling Prize. Somebody, you know, hop, hop, hopped onto Twitter and said, "I noticed that Create Streets are not saying anything positive about it. Perhaps because it doesn't, because it's you know council housing, it doesn't doesn't fit their agenda." And um, you know, I had a quick look, and there was a, a long, long sort of thread by by Create Streets on on, the, on on why it was the right scheme, why council housing was great, and why it had done a good job. And I find it difficult to disagree with that. And I think that it's important that we, where, where there is common ground, that we really work together on it. And I think that there is common ground in this case. And, of course, there's tons to disagree with as well. But that's life. That's fun. I just want to defend Rob's point slightly. I think their surveys are unbelievably dodgy. Um, I, I agree with that, by the way. Okay. There, there's some ropey uh, data use. Yeah, we're used to incredibly dodgy uh, uh, public opinion at the moment or requests for public opinion that turn out to be nonsense. Paul? Uh, just regarding the Dutch comment, I've just been with a Dutch practice this week and they're having an absolute nightmare with the government. Uh, they're really struggling. Uh, the, the contractors are moving in. There is a beacon of hope, though, in t t um, picking up on the co-housing point. Uh, there's some beautiful schemes in Vienna, beautiful schemes in, Swiss in Switzerland, in Berlin, led by co-housing groups. And I think by 20, 30, 40 people getting together with a new brief, you can create something that... Uh, I won't say beautiful, but is 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 wondrous and delightful, and uh, as adds something to the architectural uh, discussion. So I think co-housing, community housing, um, has a future in raising the debate, and hopefully other uh, developers will follow afterwards. Can I ask if there's anyone who hasn't spoken yet who wants to say something really killer to the room? Come on. Go on. 
on, say it, do it. No, ooh. Yes, go for it. Just, I think it's really amazing what Steve and Paolo and everyone is doing with these Negroni talks. But what I feel with all the talks, it always a, is a bit of an echo chamber. We, you know, there was a bit of disagreement just now, but basically we all want the same thing. I think be, you know, maybe try and diversify a bit, get invite the other. I mean, there is no other side. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we all. It's always with all the talks, we all sort of are along the same. That's why we needed the uh, Barrett's in-house architect yeah, here, yeah, I think. So that's what I was thinking earlier when we said, like, one of the five, maybe. Indeed. Let me send the mic over to this lady by the window, please. Hello, my name is Bella, and I'm not an architect, but I work for one of the architects that's not in the room, um, and we do a lot of house building for the volume house builders. And one of the things that I thought was the ugly is that the housing that we design for the volume house builders isn't even what gets built because we're the cheap architects who design it. And then we get replaced by even cheaper architects or they do it in-house or they don't need an architect for delivery. So, like, what's getting built isn't even kind of the architects who aren't in the room. It's, like, beyond that. And sometimes I feel... Like a little bit guilty that we're all, they're all there, they're all architects, and I also work for them and promote them. And none of us would live in the housing that we designed, and I kind of feel like we should hold ourselves to a higher standard than that. And I thought Rory's point about aesthetics was really interesting because we can all say, yeah, it should be aesthetically better, but what does better mean? Like, do we give the end user more choice? Is it that the buildings are less finished so everyone can pick their own? Because when it comes to selling a building, everyone's going to panic and run to the middle of the road and all the boxes are going to look the same. So I think the aesthetic thing is really kind of difficult and knotty to untangle because it means having a lot more leaps of faith. And that's just not something that anyone has the budget for at the moment. It's all like, oh, can't, can't risk that. So we'll just default to the mean. A box and it's brown. Anybody else want to talk about aesthetics, please? comes down to just bigger windows so that you don't have to walk in the door and turn on a light straight away you know so uh, on isn't passive house and co a problem for that does anyone want to contradict or i mean we haven't talked much about green stuff either to be honest with you i mean the regulations are going to go nuts soon isn't that going to completely change the aesthetics of what we do anybody want to comment on that I mean, have you looked at recent passive house schemes, how inventive they are? It is not the reason for small. It's the reason house builders use to justify their crap design. <laughs> That's put me in my place. Anybody else want to? <laughs> I was just checking, you know. Um, anybody else want to talk about the effect of um, building rigs ramping up to save the world on what we might build. Some green-looking architecture can look... I don't know. What do you think? Thanks. I think no-one's talked about... Sorry, I'm Melis from Archeo. I work in a bit of community-led housing and stuff. I am following on from what um, Anna says at the Sterling Price um, Award. We're not talking enough about the carbon impact of what we're building with. And I think we should be working together to design tools to measure that. And then we should be working with policymakers 
to uh, get regulation around that more quickly than anyone's thinking about. And I know that Field and Club Bradley are doing some amazing work in their BIM modelling, also calculating the um, carbon footprint of the materials they're using. And I just think that's fundamental for everything we're doing right now. And I wonder whether we need to work together to make that technology happen within like a year. Because it's, I mean, I, I think what War Thistleton are doing about um, talking about the impact of the carbon footprint of the buildings now and how we're never going to reach the Paris Agreement. I mean, you've seen his slide over and over again, and it kind of scares me when we're talking about the use of buildings all the time and not the carbon footprint of their built when they're built. So I want us all to work together to work about really clever ways of measuring that and telling people about it and um, being more knowledgeable. I just want to learn more and more about that so that I can um, tell my clients what's really going on. Thank you. Has anyone ever seen a carbon positive set of housing anywhere in the world? And if so, what does it look like? How does it feel like? I think clients are frightened of doing all of this because they literally have not seen it and they want to see it. There's an event on the 27th of November uh, run by Architects Declare and Steve Tompkins uh, curating that to actually sit in a room and go, how are we going to get there? So if, if you want to get on with that, then please email or call uh, how of Tompkins Architects. That's not one of the problems that we're facing in terms of the aesthetics of housing. What was being said over here was about having a familiarity. You know, I think that that's part of the problem. It's, it's too familiar or, or, you know, people want to see something that's friendly, familiar. Your example, no one's really seen it, so they don't really, not really sure. It's not familiar to them. I mean, I think when it comes to um, stuff with carbon footprints and et cetera, uh, the, really the elephant in the room here that no one's actually mentioned so far, but we only talked about it for like two minutes, is the existing housing. You, you walk out and there's Victorian and Georgian terraces with single glazed windows with, you know, no insulation from the bottom, from the top, and also... If you happen to live in a fancy part of town, there's actually regulation that prevents you from putting a double glazed window and from insulating anything because you have to keep the character. So actually, we might have to go a bit uglier to be a bit more sustainable in those cases because, of course, you can't just insulate um, select parts of the buildings because then you get the cold bridges. and oh. So that's also something that needs to be addressed, I guess. And back to Melis briefly. Yeah. I think if we're talking about housing, we're talking about existing buildings. One thing no one's mentioned is about um, people living on their own in massive five-bed houses. And I think we really need to address the housing shortage in that framework as well. And we need to... I know that there are some developers out there making, like, lovely, sexy flats for older people. But it needs to be a wider solution than that. Um, and I think that... I mean, we're working in very rural scenarios where we're actually trying to build flats for older people in the middle of villages. Because, frankly, that's the only way they're going to release their large houses. And somehow, I don't have a solution, but I just can see it's a massive issue. And I think that we should be um, proposing new housing types in rural areas that address that. Um, Fantastic. We have 23 million spare bedrooms uh, in England, which could rehouse the entire population again, just so you know. Um, I want to go back to what this lady at the end of the bar said, actually, just because I think we probably need to wrap up shortly, um, which was, how do we define what this good thing is anyway? What is it? Who decides? Um, what are the standards? Does anyone want to sort of comment on whether we have adequate 
sort of definitions and explanations for what we all think great housing is, please? Because we're trying to talk about getting it, but no one's actually said what they think it is. We've got one over. Brave soul. Um, I wonder actually whether something about this tour is a bit of a red herring because it's been all about aesthetics, but actually what seems to be lacking more than anything is actually good space planning. And we have actually a lot of um, you know, emphasis on aesthetics in the UK. Um, I mean, I worked um, briefly in my gap year for Meccano and I went to a practice that was very renowned for its use of materials and very renowned for using, doing a lot of housing, both private and social and I went there with this great expectation that it was all going to be about the materials and the articulation of the building. And they said, well, when do we, uh, we've been working on this for months and months and months, when do we do the materials? And they said, in the last two weeks. Because they put all the money in the space planning. And it was a sort of a lesson to me. And it, I think in, in coming back to the UK, it's sort of been a position of continual disappointment, really, because actually it's all again about the aesthetics. And you can polish a turd as much as you like, but it's still a turd. So we've had bollocks and turds now. Okay. Does anybody want to sort of uplift the general sort of tone of the conversation before we finish? Because I don't want to end on a turd. <laughs> Come on. I think the regulations should be relaxed. The regulations for what? Space But you know somebody terrible would exploit it, right? Only good architects, though. Yeah. Only good I think there should be licenses for certain developers, which they win in a very hard way to build smaller than normal. Did you want to say something, Johnny? Yeah, I think I, 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 I love housing. I think um, uh, it is, I mean, it is something so fundamental uh, to, to our society. That's what I started off by saying. I think it's got such incredible power to, for ill or for good. And I think, um, you know, it's, it, it, there isn't a better line of work to be involved in. And I, I, I you know, it, I, I, it, I think it's scandalous that most homes in the UK are built without architects because my, I'm not an architect, but I think of the architect's profession as being genuinely a bunch of people who are, who are trying to do something to make the world a better place than when they came into it. That's the overriding impression I get from the architectural industry. And then I, the house building industry, I don't see that. And I think it's scandalous that how all, all of our housing is being built without architects. And I just think a simple change to change the culture, to make it more difficult to build crap, however it comes about, whether it's the National Design Guide or the BBBBC um, thing, or whether it's uh, some other kind of rules mandated on the main part of the, building, the house building industry just to make it hard, hard for them to carry on throwing out the normal stuff so that they actually have to you know, engage with architects and with customers. I really don't care how it comes about, but I do think the answer is probably very much in this room. We know what we're doing. It. We're not, you know, we can have the kind of conversations about the subtleties, about columns and all the rest of it, but fundamentally, it's, you know, it's an art, it's not a rocket science. We kind of know what we're doing. We just need to be able to be given the chance to, to do it. And I think, you know, we, we should be positive and try and make that change happen. Wow. Could I, uh, just before I thank uh, the four speakers and uh, Fourth Space and everybody here at Ombra, um, well, it's difficult to know how to sum that up, really. I think everybody wants people to do something more, so we've had more regulation of the land market uh, from 
uh, one source. We've got planners planning more, please, says uh, Lee Mallet, and I tend to agree with that, actually. We think and design more. Uh, the spaces between the buildings are seem to be, actually, and I think probably are, and it's noticeable that it's the women in the room talking about this, uh, more important sometimes or often than the buildings, because that's where life, uh, communal life is lived. And we need government to regulate a bit more. We all need to worry a bit less about elevations. And, um, you know, the finances are important, actually. And I think it does cost more. Uh, and if there's a way of kind of instituting social value into what we do, I think that can't be bad either. So thank you very much to Annalee. <laughs> and to the uh, extremely miserable Paul. And to the very whimsical and hopeful Canny. And to the extremely optimistic and very positive Johnny. And thanks everyone for giving up a Monday night. Uh, please continue eating and drinking. I'm sure that's what everybody would want you to do. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.